Thanks for listening to the Pioneer Valley Church podcast. Our hope is that what you hear encourages your faith in the way of Jesus and inspires you to participate in what God is up to in the world. God bless. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus said, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then his eyes were opened, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. In uh, 2009, I was, I was living in Inglewood, California, and uh, I was just starting in the ministry, in the paid ministry at least. I was working on the west side of L.A. I was working on the west side of L.A., but I wasn't living on the west side of L.A. And, um, and I was coming home from a midweek one night, and uh, it was late at night. I'd been on the phone with another brother or something after midweek. And I've got all the sound equipment in the back of my car, and I'm parked on the curb. And, uh, and I'm kind of watching. There's a, a gentleman coming down the street here, and He's on the sidewalk side, and he's, he, he looks like he's looking over his shoulder quite a bit as he walks past my car. So I kind of pay attention to that, right? Finish up my phone call, and um, I get out of my car. I start to unload the car, and I've gotten the sound equipment out into the street. And now coming from the opposite direction that that guy was going, I hear a car approaching. And suddenly I hear gunshots going off. Pop, pop, pop. And uh, I jump into the open door of my back seat, onto all the sound equipment there, and, uh, and pop, 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 and the car drives by. And I poke my head out the, out the door to look down the street. And now that guy, who had passed me just a few moments earlier, is standing in the middle of the street and shooting at the car that was just trying to shoot him. I duck my head back in the car very quickly. <laughs> and, and I have a couple of like, seconds there to consider what am I going to do, right? And it occurred to me very quickly, I'm going to run. And so I got out of the car, and I ran as fast as I could. And something, you know, prehistoric from the, you know, uh, being chased by tigers or maybe just practice from a little boy, I, I, I started to run zigzags to try to dodge anything, you know? <laughs> Very embarrassing. And I got around the corner. It worked, as far as I know, right? The guy probably had a good laugh at the very least. Um, I got around the corner, and I kind of catch my breath, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And, and I wait a little while, and I wait a little while, and then I, I go back and make, okay, coast is clear, and my sound stuff's still in the street, and I go back and close up and go in the house and call it a night, right? Um, no curiosity, though, was strong enough to keep me in that car. 
I was not going to stick around. Um, no desire to be a witness to what was going to happen next was going to keep me close by those guys. Um, no possessions, not the car or the PA system or any of that stuff was going to keep me there. In the moment, in between two people who are trying to kill each other, I was running as fast as I could to get away from that situation. Why? Because I don't want to die. We're continuing our series uh, in, in the Gospel of Mark, and we're talking about the good news. And I'm going to go over three chapters today, Mark 8, 9, and 10. And, and, but we're only going to talk about one thing, and that's one of the things that Mark talks about in those three chapters. He covers the same thing three times, and that, that thing is death. And this is something that all humans have an aversion to, right? It's natural. Um, we don't want to die. And so as we read this story, it's understandable that, that Peter and the other disciples, um, they want to see Jesus. They understand who he is. Um, but, but what he's about to tell them um, and what he's telling them, they, they, they're not sure they're on board for all of that. And we're going to pick it up here. Sorry, I lost my place in Mark. I've got a big, a, big, uh, a big Bible here, but I don't use it all the time. I was, also, I was at the ER for about three hours again yesterday. Did I say that already? Yeah. Sorry, I only slept about three hours last night. Uh, so this should be a, a fun time for all of us. Yeah. Um, Mark chapter 8. In verse 31, he says this. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so I was supposed to read that before telling my story, but I'm going to pick it back up. What we see here is the clear aversion to death. This is not the kind of direction Peter wants to go with his life. This is, this is not the kind of Messiah, even though he clearly says you are the Messiah, this is not the kind of Messiah that, that Peter wants to follow or become like. And if you know anything about Mark and you've read his story this far, what Mark tends to do is he tends to give a story and then a teaching and then a story and a teaching. And the stories are not disjointed from the teaching. They have everything to do with the teaching that you're about to hear from Jesus. So he tells this story of a blind man who kind of sees things, but he doesn't really see things clearly. He needs a second touch. And, and now he's talking about these disciples who, who, yeah, they see that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't really get the full picture. They're kind of blind to the reality of his mission on earth. And Jesus asked this question, who do people say I am? And, and, and Peter says, you're the Messiah. And Peter is half right in his answer. Like Jesus is the Messiah, but he's only half right because the Messiah for them didn't mean son of God necessarily. So he's not claiming by saying Jesus is the Messiah that he's deity. 
He's saying, you are the long-awaited king, the one who will have power from God on high, the one who will make all things right, who will bring redemption and restoration and repentance to Israel so that we can now, as a nation, fulfill our mandate to be a light to all nations. And you will write all international relationships and Jerusalem and their oppressors will all be sorted out and, and Jerusalem will be free again. And And Peter and his disciple and the disciples are sure that what they see before them, who they see before them, is that long-awaited Messiah. And how does Jesus intend to bring about this sweeping change to all of Israel's history? He says, through his death and his resurrection. And this is the point that really Peter gets stuck at, right? And and he he goes... I don't know if I'm okay with that, Jesus. Like, I like the part about overcoming. I like the part about setting all things right. I like the part about, you know, like you restoring all things and bringing us back into right relationship with our neighbors and or getting rid of our enemies and giving us freedom. And, and, and all, I like all that stuff. And I like the fact that I'm on the inside of the circle in that story. Like, I'm already at the front. Like, I'm hoping I get a place at the table. I like all that, but... What you're talking about going and dying, that, I don't like that. And Peter, in all that Peter does, and Mark is actually thought to be a notes of Peter's sermons, basically. Mark taking down notes of Peter's sermons. So this is kind of Mark even hearing from Peter how this story went. Peter pulls Jesus aside and isn't like, hey, can I just talk to you? He starts to rebuke Jesus. This is not good, Jesus. What you're doing is not okay. This is not the plan of God for you. (laughs) And yet Jesus was certain that he was going to overcome injustice, the perversion of power and sin and death through offering himself to the world, to his enemies, to his own people in Love. He was going to make what the Bible says is a public spectacle of the powers of the world and the fear of death, shaming them by giving himself over to death on a cross and then resurrecting back to life and redeeming all nations through his life, death, and resurrection. He was going to do more than just teach good news. He was going to put it on display in his body. And he's teaching them this, about this plainly. You see, Peter wanted Jesus to follow him in that moment. He was attempting to reorder the cosmos, the created order of things. And and him, as the created, was going to tell the creator what he was going to do next. And Jesus rebukes this, what he says is just a satanic posture that says, I will define God and make him in my likeness and do what I want him to do. And he says, Peter, you need to relocate yourself right now and get back behind me because you're not leading me. I'm leading you. So that's one time that Mark tells this story that, that we hear. And actually, it shows up two more times. In Mark 9, this happens again. It says, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered in the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So they're starting to learn a little bit, right? Like, okay, Peter messed up there. 
We may be stupid sometimes, but we're not dumb, right? We're not going to do that again. How does Jesus respond? If you read on there, he goes on to tell them that actually true greatness comes through humility and through centering the margins, taking those who are at the margin, who are at the lowest of society, and treating them like Jesus. Then in Mark 10, he goes on a third time. Now they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid, again, he took the twelve aside and told them what, he was going, what was going to happen to him. We are going to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. And if you read just a little further after this, what happens is James and John get their mom to come ask Jesus, hey, can we sit at the right and left of your throne when you come into this kingdom. They just don't get it. They're still thinking this is going to be an empire. This is going to be a nation. This is going to look like the structures and the powers of the world look. And I want a seat on the right and the left. And hey, you like my mom. Hey, mom, do you mind going over there and talking to Jesus for me? Right? I don't know what that was all about. But, but Jesus responds to them in that moment by saying... Hey, you want greatness that's going to come from serving and loving others well in all humility. He says, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. Whoever wants to be first will be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why don't they get it? After three times of hearing this over and over, why doesn't it sink in? Because for them, following Jesus, for them, at that point of their story, was still about self-preservation. They set the agenda, and they wanted Jesus to make it happen. They were sure he was aligned with what they wanted. Sure, they would be dutiful, they would take orders, they would pick up baskets of food, they would row the boat, they would leave their jobs, they would follow him around, and so on. But all of it was so that they could get what they wanted. A Messiah who was going to rule the nation of Israel and restore global peace in the way that they imagined it. And three times, Mark 8 and 9 and 10, Jesus has to repeat that he is going to die and rise again. What's the significance of that three times? Biblical authors often repeat things three times to signify that it's the fullness of the thing, the completeness of the thing. That They're kind of emphatically saying this is the truest of true forms of this thing. So we see in Scripture when the angels are singing to God, they don't just say holy is the Lord God. They say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Completely holy. The fullness of holy. The truest of true holies. And likewise, Jesus' death and resurrection is the completion of the gospel message. It is the truest form, the fullest form of the good news. It's truest definition of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But the disciples miss this. They rebuke him. They don't understand. They misconstrue what he's saying. They're thinking it's some sort of health and wealth gospel of their day. How does Jesus respond to their density? We take it back to Mark chapter 8. I like what uh, somebody said. I can't remember who said it. Christine said it. I think she said that. that, Why are you so dull, right? He has those moments. And we are dull sometimes as well. Um, How does he respond to it all? He says something completely unexpected about what it will mean to be a part of his kingdom and to follow in this way that he's going. 
In Mark 8, 34, it says, He called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul or themselves? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous, sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with all the holy angels. In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus, he says, then it will require that you too take up your cross and offer your life to the world. If you try to preserve yourself, he's saying, to save yourself from the suffering of self-offering love, a cross-defined life, if you are trying to hide away from the way of Jesus as he defines it, if you're ashamed of that kind of a death or that kind of a love, and he says you're forfeiting your very self. You see, for Jesus, the cross was the redefinition of power. The resurrection was his authority to redefine power. But the cross was the redefinition of what power looks like. It was no longer through violence or greed or oppression or self-preservation or wealth. Now the power of the cross was willfully laying down your life in love for others, even your enemies. The good news of the kingdom is that God has come the kingdom has come, and the vehicle into which, through which we enter into that kingdom is self-offering love. And that brings new life, Jesus says. And so Jesus' message to the disciples is to follow him to the cross, to follow him in living a self-offering love, to follow him in bringing good news to the world around them, to follow him in bringing new life. And this message to the disciples that if they live this way, they too will save their souls and resurrect when the Son of Man appears. There are behaviors I was taught to put off in my former way of living before following Jesus. Immorality and drunkenness and carousing and a number of other things. I was not taking up my cross to follow Jesus so that I could stop being immoral, though. What I mean is repentance of personal carnal acts of the flesh isn't what, is, what it means to deny yourself and take up your cross. Like, though there are certainly times when staying righteous and, and, and following Jesus and avoiding sin, it does feel like a burden, right, at times. Right? Am I the only one? Some of us, right? But Jesus wasn't going to the cross so that he could stop drinking too much. He wasn't denying himself so that he could give up some carnal act. He was going to the cross because he was offering himself to humanity, making himself lower than others so that he could raise up people to new life. He was giving himself in love to others in a way of fully, completely living into God's will, and he's calling you and I to do the same. And as a husband, I offer myself to my wife in love, right? I, I offer myself to be her support, to provide for her, to care for her, to love her, even when I don't feel like it. 
I, as a father, I offer myself to my children to, 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 to listen to them, to support them, to care for them, to feed them, to clean up after them, to take them to the ER when they need stitches, to discipline them when, they don't, when I don't want to, right? There is a death involved in that posture towards those I love. I have to die of the part of me that's selfish, that's just selfish in nature, that, that wants it easy, that wants to preserve my preference for the moment. I don't want to do this right now. The, this, this day or, or have this happen in this part of the budget or I don't want to do this on vacation or I don't want to do this at this time in the morning or whatever. There's a part of me that just wants a little more sleep or a little more control or a little bit more of my agenda. But if I die to that part of me that wants to preserve myself and I offer myself to them in love, beautiful things happen. Why? Because I believe that if I lay down my life, it's going to produce life in them. Rest, security, hope, satisfaction, goodness of life, and a sense that they are truly loved by God. I love them, and so I lay down my life for them. And I actually come to understand Jesus more in that posture and practice. Those are the people that I like. Those are the people that I love. Those are the easiest people in my life for me to, to do that. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's a whole other category of people out there. That, yeah, maybe once in a while I'll get up early and help you out if you need it. But if every day you're knocking on my door at 5.30 asking for breakfast, I don't know if I'm ready to do Do you know what I'm talking about? There are a group of Christians in my life. There's a group of Christians in your life. Jesus calls us to love each other like, like brothers and sisters. In fact, he says to call, he love, love each other, he says, like I've loved you. In this self-offering way. And I appreciate people in our community who do that so well. Like I look at the Heatons and I'm like, I hope I get to just be like them someday. Yeah. Right? Or the Troopers. Or people that just, they just lay down their lives. For, there's just so many people. I can look out and just name names. There's so many people in this community that have that posture. What about people who can't give back to you and who aren't even a part of the church? Taking that posture towards the poor and the needy or the marginalized. I think about the, the Allens and the Morgados and others who just offer themselves to the world around them with no, no expectation of reciprocation. What about the people who are actually opposed to you? Like the people, like who do we see? I don't know. Who do we see loving those who hate them? Those who would just as quickly drive a nail through your wrist or make sport of your downfall. Jesus went to the cross for all humanity. The ones who were going to reciprocate and the ones who would never reciprocate. And Jesus believed. And so did the earliest followers of Jesus, as far as we can tell. And many Christians who made an impact on this world ever since, that if they lay down their life, if they lay down their life in this self-offering way, resurrection was on the other side. New life would appear. By him offering himself to the world as a ransom, Mark says, he's going to resurrect and so would others. The good news is that Christians, or the good news that Christians preached in Acts wasn't God loves you so much that you don't have to be stuck in your sinful patterns anymore if you just follow Jesus. That wasn't their message. That's a good message. And that's a true message. Like, praise God, that's a true message, right? But that wasn't the message of the gospel. What do we see them preach over and over and over? 
They preach Jesus' death and resurrection over and over. Why isn't the first one a good message for the gospel? Because it centers, it centers the message, the motive of discipleship on the inner therapeutic needs that the individual has. So I just want Jesus to make all my problems go away. I want him to do what I want him to do. That's not the gospel message. The gospel message is Jesus will, is not, Jesus will make all your problems go away and you'll feel much better about things and you'll, your life will turn around and all things will go well. No, they, they preached the death and the resurrection of Christ because that was the most powerful reality they had ever come to know. That through participating in his death and resurrection at their baptism and then in their way of life, just on a daily life, they were seeing new creation, new life unfold, God bringing resurrection, the life of a disciple centered around death and life and new creation, the good news of Jesus and the way to access that fully was through a life that was defined by carrying the cross. We don't run from it. We don't run from that. We embrace it. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4.10, you don't have to turn there, he says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Not just our message or our words or what bumper sticker we put on our car or what we post on Facebook. In our body and how we behave in the world, we carry around, we put to death so that life can be seen in our bodies as well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. I know this is a really cheerful sermon for some of you. We live in a time in human history where there is unprecedented individualism. Never before has a society risen to the self-curating heights of the 21st century in the U.S., We have redefined even Christianity as a part of our individual self-actualization. Our hopes, our dreams, our desires, our personal growth, our security, our sense of safety, our nation, our politics, etc. But Jesus lives in such a way that he's going to the cross. And none of us want to go there. And he's telling us that if we are to follow him, then we too will have to go to that cross. And we'll have to embrace God's will for our lives to offer ourselves to the world. We'll have to take up our crosses for the good of others, not ourselves alone. We'll have to take up our crosses and die to the parts that don't want to love others. Through the cross, Jesus is shaming the power structures and the hierarchies of the world through his dying and unjust death in the company of criminals outside of the city. And I'm just going to close with this. If your primary way of looking at your place in life, your development, your relationships is through the lens of power, you can't follow Jesus. Not the way that the world defines power. If you're more concerned with who's trying to take your power, your wealth, your status, your position, then you can't follow Jesus to the cross in a self-offering love. Or if you're more concerned with whose power you need to take by force or coercion, then you can't follow Jesus. 
I understand even just saying that as a white man in this country. Like, that's easier to say, right? And I probably mostly run into that first category of people where I don't want to lose what I value to anyone in a way that I perceive as unjust. And you may be in that place as well. Jesus bids us come and die. You may be on the other side of that equation also. And Jesus bids you come and die. This is not to say that we don't fight for justice or to center the margins or to fight for the oppressed or that we don't make every effort to do so because we do. That's part of the kingdom. We're called by God to display the good news in that way, but we do it through the way of Jesus for the sake of resurrection life, a new kind of power. Participating in God and what God is making and doing and making all things new. And this is a culturally subversive way to live, to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to serve, to be made a second class of your own volition, by the way, he says, so that others may be better. to give your life as a ransom for many, to carry your cross and lead others to new life. I believe the people who will receive the greatest rewards at the resurrection will not be the church builders. It won't be the preachers. It won't be the worship leaders or social influencers or those who end up in the history books. It won't be those on the stage that look like they have the power in the world's eyes. It'll be the anonymous people throughout history. Those we've never heard of. We've never seen. Who've lived unremarkable lives in the world's eyes. But who laid down their lives for others. Who did so well. With humility. In anonymity. Without a word of encouragement or a like on their post, right? Or a follow. But in the faith that they somehow, in doing this, were taking part in the new creation of Jesus. And what his kingdom was up to. And therefore, they loved, they forgave, they served, they carried their cross when no one knew, no one cared, but only Jesus. Peter wanted to lead Jesus where he wanted him to go. Jesus rebukes him. Because Jesus only intends to lead us, not the other way around. And he's leading you to love others as he loves. Jesus is not our personal therapeutic genie. You're not going to like all the places he leads you or all the people he leads you to. But he is the author and the perfecter of the faith that we follow. He is the one who we say, hey, you embrace the cross. And so I, too, will embrace the cross and participate in your death and resurrection. And that's good news, Mark says. Do you need a second look at Jesus? Do you see him correctly? Mark wants you to know there's good news for you. You can get a second look at him. In Christ... We don't belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. And even in the face of death, 
We love, even when it's unjust what's happening to us. We love, even when it's misunderstood what we're trying to do. We love, even when it means losing some part of our rights or our privileges. We love. May we continue to learn to embrace the cross of Christ and not be shamed by how it looks to the world. But understand that its power is the kingdom power, as Jesus did as Jesus does. And may we carry that power in our bodies, not just our words, not just in our agreements, but in how we behave in the world, in our lives, on display for others to see and to know that there is good news. Amen.